I'm turning this evening to the book of Malachi, chapter 3 and verse 18. This will not actually be our starting point, but our opening text, Malachi 3, verse 18. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. And that is really one of the great themes of this last prophecy of the Word of God, discerning between saved and unsaved. Now back to the beginning of the book, and we'll attempt a survey in a single address this evening. Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now in 538 BC, following the Edict of Cyrus, the Medo-Persian emperor who set free the Jews and others who had been taken captive to return to their homeland, something like, uh, well, up to 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem and the region around. They didn't get yet the whole of Judah, but that many returned. That was the remnant of a great nation. After the Babylonian captivity, the Babylonians were crushed by the Medo-Persians. After the end of that 70 years of captivity, such a small group by comparison with the size of the entire nation of Judah returned to their homeland and in particular to Jerusalem. And they began to rebuild the temple. Well, they laid the footings, and then they stopped the work. And for some while, for 18 years, they didn't lift a tool or do anything in the work. And that was because of various discouragements and probably selfish ends. They wanted to make a good job of their own houses. That's one of the complaints that uh, different prophets made against them. They feathered their nests and they built for themselves what they hoped would be a prosperous society. It didn't work out because the Lord withheld blessing on their harvests and there were always shortages and difficulties, but they didn't get it. They didn't get the point or the discipline that was being meted out to them. And really it was left for some time when uh, uh, prophets were raised up to bring about the resumption of building. And we've been studying those prophets also. Haggai and Zechariah. And they urged and exhorted the people to get back to work. And they were successful. The people would respond at least outwardly. They didn't seem to have, most of them, any deep inner spiritual life, but they could be roused up to some form of patriotism as a nation and get on. And in 1516, the temple was completed. And then there was another decline. And after 60 years, the Lord raised up and sent the prophet Ezra. And he set about reforms and some 
16 years after the work of Ezra, Nehemiah, who was a high official in the Persian court, but a Jew. Well, Nehemiah was moved to go, and he did, and he carried out as governor of Jerusalem, appointed by the emperor of Persia, he set about various reforms. But after his departure, things collapsed again. And now Malachi is raised up, and he's going to be God's last messenger to that generation. And he's going to seek to arouse them and to stir them. So here's the final prophecy of the word of God, God's last messenger to that Old Testament period before the intertestamental period where there were no great works of God, no prophets raised up until another prophet arose, John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. And here we begin then the book of the prophet Malachi. And it's most interesting, each of these prophets that we've looked at, minor prophets so-called, in uh, recent months, they have a distinctive approach that really needs to be appreciated. And that of Malachi is like that of Haggai, completely novel. And he employs a literary device not employed anywhere else or by anyone else. Verse 2, and the book falls into roughly six sections. We'll look at them hurriedly. The first section deals with the state of the people, spiritually, the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. It deals with their unawareness. They seem to be unaware of their calling and unaware of their distinctiveness and their blessings. And we'll need to apply that to the present day. But that's the first section. The second section is the condemnation of the priests. They were as bad as anyone, and there's a special and distinctive condemnation for them. And this prophecy accompanies each of these sections, and the prophecy for the priests is that the priesthood is coming to an end. And in the time of Christ, it will be replaced by another priesthood, a priesthood of all believers, a godly priesthood. And then the third section is the charge against them of treachery. And that's a very strong charge, and the leading example of it is their shocking conduct in marriage, marrying pagan wives and discarding their original wives. And this is, in its turn, an illustration of their spiritual faithlessness. That's the first section that they're warned about that. Then there's a fourth section, which is a great prophecy of Christ and his coming and what he will do, and not only his accomplishments, but the troubles that it will cause. Then there's a fifth section, and it's about, really, consecration. It homes in on the abandonment of all the tithes and offerings. This generation, delivered from the Persian Empire, brought back to Jerusalem, the temple rebuilt, preserved and kept, nevertheless, is uh, 
so remiss and so far from God that they abandon all tithes and offerings and the offering of their hearts and their lives. Lack of consecration. We see a lot of that today in many, many churches that are nominally evangelical, a complete absence of any commitment or consecration on the part of the people. And then there's a final section about the eternal destiny of the saved and the eternal destiny of the lost. So when you look at Malachi, don't think that it's a, a, a great box of confused ideas, observations, sentiments, prophecies that tumble out with a sort of random character to it. It's very systematic and it follows these six departments or compartments. And in every one of them, there's the same structure, roughly. First of all, a charge is brought about against the people. This is what's wrong with you. And words are put in by Malachi. He puts words into the mouths of the people and he makes them respond, how have we done that? Tell us precisely. We don't consider we have done this. Tell us. And so Malachi, well, he's the mouthpiece of God, tells them in exactly what way they are guilty of the charge and what God will do about it and how things are going to be so different in the new church when Christ comes. And it, each section that I've mentioned follows that same pattern. So it's a book of great order. It's very systematic. And we respect that. And we follow that quite carefully. So the first charge comes here in chapter 1 and verse 2. I have loved you, said the Lord. Doesn't sound like a charge, but it is. I have loved you. It's loaded with implications. It implies they haven't returned that love and they haven't treated him as they should have done. And the answer in their mouths, put in their mouths by Malachi, is yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? We haven't been loved by God. We haven't evidence of God. Look at us. We're poor, they would be saying. Our crops fail. We are undernourished. Everything we do withers and we struggle along. And we're intact, attacked by these marauding pagans. They keep coming across our borders and troubling us and burning our fields, what remains of them. In what way are we blessed? We are of all people most miserable. That's really the answer. How has God blessed us? They were a grumbling people. We see that more as the book goes on. And then here is the answer which God gives. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Even though, verse 4, Esau, that is Edom, Seth, the nation of Edom, 
We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. They were a determined people. They weren't like you, the Jews, returned to Jerusalem, God seems to say, who are just grumbling and won't listen. They put forth every effort to make their nation prosperous, but they failed. And you have been preserved. They disappeared from the face of the earth centuries ago, and you are still here. They succumbed to the first hostilities. Everything crumbled, and their efforts came to nothing. And yet you, who made no effort, you are still here. Isn't there abundant evidence of the love of God and his covenant-keeping ways? He said he would keep you no matter what, and he has. But you don't notice. You're not aware of it. You don't care. We could apply that, couldn't we, to ourselves? In what way do we not return the love of God, says the church? Well, you're here. You're the only empire in the world, the Church of Jesus Christ, that is represented all over the world and has been for generations and still is, with believing worshippers everywhere. This is unprecedented. This is unique. Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, and here we are. Have we not abundant evidence of the goodness of God and the power of Christ down the centuries? We could apply it to ourselves as individual Christians. You're still here, friends, and you're still worshipping. And yet, you and I, we've failed him many, many times. But he's upheld us and restored us, times without number, and blessed us and drawn us back. But here it applies to the people, the Jews of that time. I have loved you, but the implication is you haven't loved us. How, in what way, have we shown lack of love? You're not aware of your calling and your privileges, and your preservation. Others who put forth much more effort have disappeared, and you have been preserved. But there'll come a time when the remnant, the descendants, will see this. And in the, with the coming of Christ and the Christian church, verse 5, the note of prophecy, your eyes shall see, and you shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel, beyond, far, far beyond the limits of Judah, as she is at that time, but throughout the world. And then things change a little in the sixth verse, but I must hurry, because a second section begins here, and it is the section which deals with the priesthood. Verse 6, here's the charge building up. A son honoureth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, says God, where is mine honour? And if I be a master, where is my fear? This is going to be about the priests. They'll be named very shortly. 
saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, this is your defence, wherein have we despised thy name? Well, it's what you've been doing. Verse 7, ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible in effect. You allow people to bring unlawful and inadequate sacrifices. If they bring a lamb, it isn't perfect and unblemished. It's a lame one, or a diseased one, or a little or deformed or undersized sacrifice. They're worshipping on the cheap. They're shortcutting the rules that God had given, which were designed to teach his holiness and the coming great sacrifice. But the rules are not being taken seriously. And in that, you were showing contempt. The priests accepted these inadequate offerings, I assume, for bribes or for favours. But they accepted them. Verse 8, And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor, will he be pleased with thee? Or accept thy person? Your, he won't accept you for what you've done. And then the appeal to them, or rather their appeal to God. Verse 9, you might say this, Malachi says to the people, to the priests, and now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. But he's not going to hear prayers made for you. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts, end of verse 9, when you cheat him? Well, there's a message for us in that, dear friends. You're a believer. We seek to honour the Lord and live for him. But we've cut our devotions. And we've cut out our Christian duties because we were too busy or too tired. And we were treating God lightly. And we skipped meetings we could have attended to. Left them out. And then we say, I have a great need. I'm going to pray to my God. Yes, but he won't hear you. Because you're not honouring the rules. You're not living as you should live and being faithful to him. So it's a warning to us all to be faithful and careful if we want our prayers answered and ongoing communion with God and no withholding of his blessing. And look at more against the priests in verse 10. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Our translators have added those words for naught to give the sense, but that's the charge. You priests, says Malachi, won't do anything for nothing. You're paid for everything. And you make sure you're well paid and well rewarded. Every now and then, it somehow gets out that some prosperity preacher or even some 
not a prosperity preacher, a more sound preacher, is getting paid an awful lot of money. And when that happens, there are always those who will rise to the defense of this overpaid preacher and say, well, he works very hard, or he does wonderful things, or arguments like this. If he were not a preacher, he's such a wonderful man, evidently, he could be CEO of some wealthy company. So he should be highly paid, and he should deserve it. How unscriptural all this reason is. God says, well, I condemn you because you won't do anything for nothing. You will only do it to be rich, or to be very comfortable, or to be very well off. There are principles in the word of God. Those who are the Lord's servants are very blessed by God just to have enough and to get by it and to live for the Lord. They don't need riches, deep reserves, expensive things. That's the rule of the scripture. So they look to him and depend upon him and they should never be over-rewarded. This isn't the world. This isn't an earthly corporation. It's the people of God. It's the church. Well, who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do ye kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. And then the prophecy on the end of this Verse 11, for from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. When Christ comes, it'll be the Jewish Gentile Church of Jesus Christ. And in every place, not just at the temple, note, not just through the priesthood, priesthoods coming to an end, in every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. It's Old Testament language that's used, of course, but it's New Testament blessings that are being described. So the incense has been replaced by the willing service and love and praise of God's people. This will be a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. And there will be a priesthood of all believers and offerings of praise and worship and service made in every city on the face of the earth. And then more on the priests to the end of that chapter. And they are warned. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If ye will not hear and if ye will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name, I will even send a curse upon you. And that's what happened. And to their seed, verse 3, which means the priesthood's ended. There will be no successors to the Jewish priesthood of old. The succession will be ministers of the word in New Testament times. And the priesthood, the witness and the prayers and access to God of all believers. Well, I'd like to go down to another section 
and it's a very sad one in chapter 2 and verse 10. And this is uh, about uh, faithfulness or treachery and the people who are addressed. We're finished with the priests for the moment. Chapter 2, verse 10. There's a new section here. Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? And you wonder what this is about through a verse or two. But at the end of verse 11, you get it. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And that's what they were doing. And verse 12 says that people were marrying pagan wives and adopting their gods, letting them bring pagan gods into the home. But verse 3 gives us yet another clue as to the form this took. And this have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out. Why is that? Well, because here's a man who has become cold towards the wife of his youth. And he loved her, and she loved him, and they married, and they started a home, and a homestead, and a small holding, and they had children, and then, wicked and selfish individual that he was, and hypocrite as he was, he grew cold towards her, and began to snap at her, and lose his temper with her, and shout at her, and treat her despicably and unreasonably. And then he decided he would put her away. He would divorce her. And then... He fell for a much younger pagan wife. The pagans were among them. They were servants. They would come among the children of Israel. And he would favor someone and lust after her. And he would take her to be his wife. While his original wife would go weeping to the altar. Go to the temple and weep her heart out in prayer at what had befallen her and what had happened. And this is a, a great sin. It literally happened, and it was happening on a widespread basis, but it's picked out, and the way it's worded, to show the more total faithlessness of the people. Those men, this was a kind of representative sin. They were disloyal to God also. They were disloyal to their calling as Jews, that they were the nation selected through whom the Messiah would come. They'd lost interest in that. And this was a kind of figurehead sin which represented all of their hearts. They were unfaithful in their conduct. And then verse 14, it's elaborated on, the Lord was the witness is the witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. And it's elaborated. Verse 17, ye have wearied the Lord with your words. They've defended themselves. 
We are good people. How can the prophet describe our remarriages in terms of treachery and unfaithfulness? We are good people. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them. Or where is the God of judgment? We haven't been struck down on account of our conduct. So how can you tell us that we're doing wrong? Well, I know what you're thinking. This is almost unbelievable hypocrisy. Of course it is. They went to the temple. They insisted that prophets such as Malachi should respect them. They asserted and claimed they were reasonable and good people, that the charges against them were not fair and not true. And it's so obvious it's what they had done, a terrible thing. The evidence is paraded before their eyes, but they won't have it. Well, in passing, great warning, friends, hypocrisy is often an invisible sin, invisible to the hypocrites. And it can arise, the devil can ensnare us with hypocrisy by diverting our minds from self-examination. So we forget about self-examination. We forget about soul-searching. We forget about lamenting our wrongs and our sins. Oh, that's a small thing. I can allow that. And then it becomes a bigger thing and a bigger thing. You know, after decades in ministry, it is so sad, every now and then, you will come across a real hypocrite. Now, I'm not suggesting it's common. Small hypocrisies are common. And I'm not suggesting there are any hypocrites among us here this evening known to me as such. And I'm not mentioning this for that reason. But every now and then you come across a real hypocrite. I remember a deacon visiting in the neighborhood. And he came to a door, knocked that door. And the lady who answered the door said, I'm not coming to your church. You're tainted with hypocrisy. And you must know it. And you must allow it. And the good deacon said, whatever do you mean? There's a man there in that church who married me in a tribal wedding in Africa somewhere. And he's abandoned me. And he won't have anything to do with me. And he follows other people. And he's one of your men, active men. And when this was taken up, this is years ago, it was true. It was despicable. It was true. And this man, I suppose he was about 40 years of age by this time, do you know he was indignant to be found out? And he wouldn't have it that there was anything wrong. 
and he tried to justify himself and he resented this being becoming known and being dealt with. And he went off from here and in a matter of weeks I had a letter from another church saying, uh, can you give me a recommendation for this man who's seeking to join our membership? And yet he was very winsome, this man, very involved, very vocal, and in a good sense most of the time. There is no knowing how hypocrisy can trick a person and turn a person into self-righteous, defensive, indignant, resentful of any check on them. Never allow personal errors to go unchallenged in your own life. You never know where Satan will take it and how he'll deepen that. Self-examination and soul-searching is so vital for all of us. Keep short accounts with God, confess our sins, pledge to serve him, because there's no knowing what secret sin, sin can lead to in hypocrisy. It's rare, but sometimes there's an extreme reached. And that's really what's going on here in this section. Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? But our time is up, and I must move to conclusion. I haven't succeeded in covering the whole book just look at chapter 3. It's the great prophecy of Christ. Behold, I will send my messenger, this is John the Baptist, the Elijah of the New Testament, and he shall prepare the way before me by preaching repentance. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. That's exactly what happened with the incarnation of the unexpected Christ, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come. Whom ye delight in? Well, they didn't seem to be delighting in the coming of the Messiah. Oh, but they did in a sense, just that they had a twisted interpretation concerning what he would do. They said, Messiah will come and he will make our nation great, and he will make us prosperous and mighty on earth. They were only looking at material gain, not the spiritual work of Christ. Verse 2 of chapter 3, we're moving to conclusion. But who may abide the day of his coming, and who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like the fuller's soap, and he was... Ye hypocrites, he said to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees. And they hated him. They couldn't stand the coming of Christ and the challenge of their morality and their unbelief. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll bring out of the Judaism of the time of his incarnation and he'll save a new generation and purge and purify them and they will offer up 
offerings of righteousness in worship and service to the Lord, and all that will be pleasant to the Lord. And then it goes on. I'll close with the very final verses of the book. But just chapter 3, verse 16, there's a contrast going on. There's the grumbling of the unbelievers, verse 14 and 15. And then verse 16 of chapter 3 says, then, and it's a then, which means on the other hand. Some of the thens of the Bible are to do with what comes next. After that, then comes such and such. This isn't one of those thens. This is a then, which means on the one hand, there were the unbelievers. On the other hand, then, here are the believers. They that feared the Lord spake often one to another. It's not just about fellowship. It's about what they said to each other. Them that thought upon his name. The end of the verse. The people who talked among themselves about spiritual things and the work of the Lord and soul winning and the Lord's blessings upon them. There's a special book in heaven. There probably isn't. It's a way of saying God's special notice is upon them. The Lord hearkened, heard our conversations, heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. God knows everything that's going on, but dare we say it, there is a special level of divine affection and concentration focused on those who love him and talk to each other about him. That's surely the meaning of the verse. And they shall be mine. They're so precious. And the last verses of the book, verse 4, four of chapter 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant. It always stands, the Ten Commandments, all of them including the fourth, reflect the character of God and stand for all eternity. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, John the Baptist, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the Old Testament prophets, all put together the first and second returns of Christ. They do not distinguish between them. It's the day of the Lord. His first coming, his gospel age, and his second coming. It's all the day of the Lord. And verse 6, the close of the book. Do you understand this, friends? It's fascinating. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children. It means the great characteristic of true Christians in the New Testament age will be that they will be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs, all the way down to Moses, the ultimate fathers. He shall turn the heart of the fathers, in a biblical sense, 
the patriarchs of old. I was mentioning wealth just now. Abraham was wealthy, flocks and herds and so on. But you know he didn't care for it. He always lived in a tent. He could have had a splendid place built somewhere. He could have occupied a palace. He could have enjoyed all the trappings. But he wasn't interested in material gain because he looked for a city which is to come, whose builder and maker is God. And that heart is in all true believers. And you can tell them. They're not adding riches to riches. They're not living for the here and now. Their minds are on higher things and better things. The heart of the fathers is in the children of God. And the heart of the children to their fathers. We love the Abrahams, the patriarchs, the Apostle Pauls, all the apostles. We love them. The dedicated, the true, the loyal to Christ. Those are the people we want to emulate and be like. And then the curious ending phrase. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Amazing. If there were not here in London and spread throughout the world people like this who had the heart of Abraham and the apostles who were all for Christ, if there were not genuine Christians, however few they might be, the Lord would end the world and bring it into judgment. It is on the account of the elect who are being called in and transformed by Christ and given this kind of heart that God keeps this sinful world going until Christ finally comes. That's what the final sentiment of the book means. In a sense, it can't possibly go to our heads. We are infinitely more significant than we realize. And yet this is how we want to be, all for him. Let's close this evening singing the hymn 542. Hymn 542. Leave.